out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, singer-songwriter, and generally very creative person. It is the one and only Alan Rankin, who was one-time member of the Associates with Bill McKenzie, and um, they are currently... Well, he is currently celebrating the 40th anniversary of their second studio album, Sulk, which came out in 1982, so there you go, um, which has that very funky um, Technicolor cover. There you go, interesting facts. Anyway, the album is being reissued, as it is every five years, probably. Anyway, look, this is an amazing interview, I have to say. Um, it's also, we had to do it over several days because... Um, we had a lot to chat about, really. So this is part one, which we did on a, an evening. The other, which the other two are slightly different, but you'll get the, uh, you'll hear the vibe anyway. Um, so after several minutes of casual chat, we get down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years. I know, classic. Anyway, Alan, it's over to you. Take it away. Listening. Um, well, yeah, mine is probably um, before that. It's in. Um, I can remember in primary one having a Beatles haircut. And I didn't even know I had one. (laughs) I just had this enormous fringe. And I had the longest and thickest eyelashes that um, anyone could see. And I was getting chased around the playground of... um, at least three schools um, just for that. Right. Um, And I remember singing to myself, yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah, 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 the Beatles. And then I kind of went off the boil until about 1967, 68, and it was all, well, frankly, bubblegum. Yes. It was um, Daydream Believer. It was um, The Legend of Xanadu mm. with Dave D, Bozy, uh, uh, Dozy, Beaky Mick and Titch. Um, it was, uh, that's what um, reawakened my um, uh, love of music. Yes. It was the bubblegum stuff. Clean. Was it the? Was it who was the band who had a whip on stage and they made that really cracking sound? That's we, the legend of Xanadu with Dave D. Oh, it was right because I haven't actually heard that for probably fifty years. But my God, it seemed very exciting. And there was a sort of rumor that he once caught someone in the face with it, which looked very dangerous. Which you would have you know, <laughs> well, you wouldn't get away with it now, would you? It'd be health and safety gone mad. But I don't think so. <laughs> no, not health. No, but it was just very dramatic. I, actually, one of my earlier moments, my earliest moments, was a few years before that. It was, I suppose my parents must have had it on TV, was The Scylla Show, and it had this great introduction of Step Inside Love by uh, Scylla Black, which was written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon, and it was such a dramatic song, and even now I kind of get kind of excited by it, because it had that kind of quiet, yeah. quiet, loud, you know, and obviously yeah. I'm sure Kurt Cobain stole she, it all. She tackled one of them. Hal David and uh, uh, Bacharach's song. Um, oh, I can't remember the title. But it was really, really difficult to sing. Yes. I think all their songs were quite tricky. They always sounded so simple, but then when any friends, musicians tried to play them, it's, uh, they was, yeah, and I think the same with ABBA. I think there was a kind of a complexity in some of the arrangements. I think it yeah. wasn't... Was it Alfie or... Um, because I know there What's was. It all about Alfie? Um, it might have been. Because I know there was one song I, that Dion Warwick was going to do, and then Dion it... Warwick did it. Yeah. Um, 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 but I think Scylla did one of their songs, which was incredibly difficult to sing. Yes. And um, also um, the Look of Love. Oh God, now, that's amazing. Dion Warwick did it naturally but in my book dusty did it the best 
Yes, dear old Dusty, the look of love. I must admit, and it's probably now a lot longer than I imagined, probably 20 years ago, I went to see Bert Bacharach in, in London when he he did an album with Elvis Costello. And That's I think right. They played about three shows and I managed to sort of go get the enthusiasm to go and see it and it was magical. And I must admit, it was it was probably a long time ago. And Bert looked quite old then and I thought, well, lucky to see him. But he's still, you know, he's still with us and... He still released an album, so... Yeah, well, lucky bugger, he was married to Angie Dickinson. <laughs> yes, of course. Do you remember her? The name, Angie Dickinson, yeah. Police woman. Oh, right, yes. There yes. you go. Nice. So where... Yes, I know. It was the, it was his style. It was the jumper off the shoulder look, wasn't it? It was just Ralph Lauren in you know in, ensconced, wasn't it? Really, he was cool. He was Californian. He was just tanned, and just always very really relaxed, actually. But he didn't write the lyrics, did he? Actually, the other band that were, were a huge influence on my life was the, the Carpenters. I thought lyrically they were stunning, actually. Though again, they didn't write most most of their material, but. The songs they did write was incredible. So, look, did you come? Was your were you from a kind of a musical family at all? You know, did your parents were they at no, all? Not at all. Um, uh, my dad was a headmaster, come school inspector. My um, mother was a, oh, a a medical secretary. That was it. Right. Was it quite a strict no. house? Was he quite... Um... No, no. He was the most open guy I could ever think of, of his generation. God, that was unusual. That was really amazing. I mean, I can remember being... Um, staying in the headmaster's house and um, uh, living across the street from the primary school and I could see this look of dread on his face because he had to had to uh, deliver this religious assembly and it was just I could see it even at the age of five or six tearing him apart because he didn't believe any of this shit. Hmm. Yes, and at that time... So he was a humanist. Right. And he just said, this is a pile of shit. That's good. It's good not to sit on the fence, isn't it, really? It's good yeah. to it's good it's not it's good to not be too lib lib dim. So um yes, well that was a handy that was a handy bit childhood actually, because sometimes people have anyway you could imagine it's a kind of hit and miss situation. And what was it you, you grew up in the was it the Bridge of Allen in No, I was born there, but um, I was brought up in in the environ of uh, Bridge of Allen. Be that um Crack Manon or Cosnoton or Alloa, that's where I was. But uh, quickly we moved to Dundee. Right. When I was about um, six or seven years old. Yes, my God, that must have felt quite a big, big. And did you have any brothers or sisters that sort of had any kind of impact or influence on your life? I say that because I had an older brother. He was seven years older. He had sort of, I sort of thought he was wonderful. So I copied a lot of his stuff, even his music taste, which was prog rock, which I have to say I was a bit disappointed with, really, in later life. So, um, yes, no, I just wondered if you sort of had any kind of those influences. Uh, uh, uh. Sorry, David, I was just lighting up there. Okay. Um, uh, yes, I did have an older brother who was three years older. And um, I'm not uh, aware that I was copying him or emulating him in any way, but I think I must have been because I can remember being in Dundee and Ride a White Swan, and Hot Love, um, uh, etc. from T-Rex, and just saying yes. But at the same time in my head, 
I got my first guitar. <laughs> and I'm saying, I know what that is. Um, I know that that's G. And I know that the do 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 I'm listening to um, basically a Western. Mm. Now, I don't know whether you can imagine that, uh, David. It's just like, do, 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 do. Yes, it does, it does, because my dad was in the country and Western, so I used to hear a lot of this kind oh, of... But this was John Wayne Western. It's just like, do, 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 do. And I'm saying to myself, God, I can do that shit. <laughs> yes, there you go, there you go. Yes, well, John Wayne was, we didn't have a lot, did we? So John Wayne, that I could I could picture it now. I could picture it now. So so you were of the, of the age where, I, I guess, you know, seeing the, the kind of the movement of glam appearing must have had a bit of a thrill, because I, I, I was you know, probably about 11, and, no, probably not even that, when, you know, things like Schools Out was on by... Alice Cooper being very excited. Oh, God, I can remember Alice Cooper coming out. No, it was quite simple. With schools out, and I I just wished to myself, I wish that was my year to be leaving school and never looking back. Um, But I strongly identified with it. Yes, well, I remember even as a as a young person, it was it was quite an anthem, wasn't it? I think we had that and sweet blockbuster, so I think it was all there. We were we were very excited at primary school with those sort of things, and also Crazy Halls by the Osmonds, which let's face it had that great sort of. Uh, no, no, I don't had believe nothing. <laughs> no, no qualms about Crazy Horse, <laughs> not at all. No, but yes, when you're these at, when, were the U two. Utah Saints in reverse. <laughs> yes, I could I could imagine. So then, because you got that bit more of a, uh, I suppose being a in Dundee and also a bit a bit a little bit older, did sort of did you suddenly have that kind of moment where punk kind of hit you quite quite hard and fast in sort of seventy six seventy seven? Yeah, well, by that time I'd been in Dundee. Um, up until I was uh, 13, and then I moved to Glasgow for two years, and then I went to Linlithgow, um, which is a wee town um, about, oh, uh, I suppose, uh, 15 miles um, uh, west of Edinburgh. Right. And um, I used to go into Edinburgh virtually every time I could get the opportunity. And um, I just heard this voice, and I couldn't even see the voice. But I said to uh, the guy who was managing me at the time, I just said, I have to get with that voice. And three weeks later... Um, Bill McKenzie stepped out of a fast black. A fast black is a taxi. Right. And from that point, the rest of his is history. Yes. Well, but there's there's lots going on. There was a lot going on. So so when you did you leave school at sixteen? Was that your or did you stay on for A levels? I stayed on for A-levels, or six-year, as we call it in Scotland, and my uh, dissertation was going to be the readability factor of the six-year syllabus. Right. (laughs) So it pissed a lot of people off. Um, So I got got out of that um, fairly quickly. And yes, I just went to Edinburgh. You went? And, uh, what yes. was What was your first gig you went to? 
my first gig that I went to. Yes. You mean to see a proper band? A proper with everything cover versions no not cover versions you know like because a lot of people you know i mean this is a sweeping statement but a lot of people who are interviewed from scotland always mention roxy music or david bowie so um yes it's like god how did everyone get to see those two people they're so cool but did you yes did you have go oh yeah by the way that was my first and second bands i saw i never saw david bowie i never saw roxy music um i I think I saw um, uh, the average white band. Right. And I've got no idea where it was. I cannot remember, David. Um, And there was something about them. Now, if you imagine in the mid-70s, you're in Edinburgh. Uh... Who the fuck has come out of Edinburgh? It's the fucking Bay City Rulers. Oh, yes, of course. There is nothing to be proud of. Yes. Even no. even though they do have a very sad story, don't they? Poor old Les. Well, but, you know, they made millions and millions and millions. They, well, but, their their manager made a lot. I don't think I don't. Yes. I don't think the band saw much of it. I think that's the problem. That's well, Tam Payton. Yes. Know, long may he uh, me he uh, be dead, um, but he was just a cunt. Yes, I, I think I think Les probably used a similar word when I interviewed Les once, because um, <laughs> he he just was a mean. He was mean, wasn't he? He was one of those classic. Yeah. People. He tried to create this thing around him, whether it, uh, uh, and whether it was on um, land that was adjacent to the mental asylum um, uh, just outside Edinburgh. Um, no, he was a real cunt. Mm. And he was trying to do things to young people that shouldn't be done. Um, But anyway, apart from that, that was all Edinburgh had to offer. The Tartan Army, yes. Whereas uh, bands from Glasgow, um, they were working. They were really, really working. And bands from Dundee were also working. And I think um, when I heard Bill, it was a band from Dundee that were trying to play this funk music that they felt they ought to, but they really weren't very good at it. Yes, it's tricky. It's interesting because I did an interview with a member of the a- was APBs recently who had a very sort of i suppose it was on new kind of one of those new york funk sounds even though they're in from scotland but you know it was quite a i don't know did you come across the apbs uh no fair enough yes it does happen but then you said much earlier you said your manager did you say you had already kind of picked up a, a manager is that to do with um had you been spotted as a this is a person who who needs who, who, who's going to go places in the music world? Um, I think I would be pres- being presumptuous say, yes, I was. But um, the guy uh, uh, or the two guys that picked me up, were uh, they were... Um, uh, let me see. Um, hold on. Ian Slater, and that's Slater with a S, and then a C, Slater, and mm. that, uh, and a guy called John Mayer. Now John Mayer owned a record shop in the High Street called um, uh, Phoenix Records. Mm. 
And this guy used to carry around a shortened off fireman's axe in his briefcase. And he was not from Edinburgh. He was on uh, from Easter House in Glasgow. Uh, but he was a very, very intelligent guy. And he's now uh, a QC uh, um, uh, in the legal establish- establishment and has been since 1989. Okay. Did you, I mean, I just, did you say he had a, a, a did you say he, you had a short, sawn off axe, did you mention? Yes. Ah, okay, right. I just wanted to, because I thought you said that. I thought, wow, that's, and then, you know, I, I thought the story was going to go somewhere slightly different, as you would, um, someone who carries those sort of kind of things in their briefcase. But, um, oh, right, so he, he sort of managed to not go down a life of um, crime, I guess. God, that was amazing, really. So what, 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 did you feel kind of quite protected with these two who were looking after your interests? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. One was very cerebral, Ian Slater, with the S-C-A-L, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. And the other one was much more mm, in your face. Um, he didn't take any prisoners. No. And um, he managed a, a, a band called Silly Wizard. Yeah, that's not a great name, is it? Right, okay. But if you look up Phil Cunningham... Yes. ...and uh, Johnny Cunningham, you see Phil Cunningham as the accordionist on every um, uh, New Year's show there is. Right. Now, uh, and um, Phil Cunningham... He was um, he was younger than me. He was sixteen, and he was still able to play quadruple uh, quadruple uh, notes on the same note after sixteen pints. Right. <laughs> God, I mean that's that is amazing. The Cunninghams are they still are they still with us? Did they did they survive their? Bill Cunningham's I'm not so sure about Johnny coming in. Mm. He was a violinist, and they hailed from Musselburgh on the uh, east side of uh, Edinburgh. But they were masterful musicians. But yeah. he managed them, and um, so uh, Slater and Mayer got to managing bands, but it didn't last for very long, no. No, God. But it's a difficult job, and not many people manage to do it for very long, because I think it's, um, I suppose there's no, there's no school, school involved, is there really? No training, you just have to have a go, and you, you know, and there is a sort of, well, there used to be a bit of a cliche, you were either slightly of a gangster sort, or you came from the public, you know, public school world of... Yeah, you know, you know it, it's... Um, they started off as agents, and then they quickly tried to do management, and then they knew that they could not marry the two um, cerebral with Slater and the more in-your-face with um, Mayer. Yeah. But they couldn't marry that. Well, that's a tricky one. And so were you, were you already starting to sort of write songs and, and sort of develop quite a repertoire as well as a reputation in town? Well, I met Bill in 76. That was a long, long, hot summer. And um, I had been with uh, this... God, horrendous band uh, that was called at various times the Mike Lawrence Quintet. Mike Lawrence never existed. Right. And um, uh, 
we would play four dates in one gig at a hotel on the North Bridge called the Carlton Hotel. And that, that would give us access to, A, Sunday morning, we would rehearse five other numbers, five different numbers, uh, five different hits, if you like, that we could play to other uh, people. Um, and then we had, um, we would go out and play and we'd be called Hideaway. No idea why. Mm. Give the fuck. <laughs> but I do remember uh, being in Broxburn, which is oh, not far from uh, Susan Boyle's um, house. And uh, I do remember Bill getting off with three women in one night. Rock and roll. God, that's, um, yes, that's youthful. And one of them was black, which he particularly loved. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. He He was ahead of his time. Well, you know, it's good. I remember in those days, I suppose... I do remember sort of bands used to, or musicians used to sort of, when asked, you know, why they were into music, would often... It was if I can if I can paint a picture of a miners welfare club, it's Luke. Um, right. Here's the headline act, and he's called Saul Byron. S O L B Y R O N. That's your headline act. But your support act and his backing band is going to be us and Bill would just say to himself I'm gonna fuck that fucking black bitch that's what he did right well yes he he was all heart wasn't he my god did you did you feel a bit uncomfortable with his kind of um kind of attitude no not not at all yeah you know and would I have felt any more un- uncomfortable if it was uh, uh, a male. No. Because I knew what Bill was. He was, he was, um, yes, he was energetic. He was very, um, I suppose when you're young, it's all go, isn't it, really? So did, so... Bill, Bill, Bill would shag the moving hair on a barber's Fucking floor. God, that's I've never heard that expression actually, but uh, <laughs> it's quite it's, it's pictures paints quite a picture. Yeah. So so when you met Bill, you heard the voice, went wow, this is good. Then you met the character. How did you kind of navigate your kind of friendship or, or kind of um, partnership with each other? It was really very very easy. Um, Bill stepped out of this fast black, this taxi, and in that moment when he saw four of us uh, and me with um, hair down to my uh, waist and uh, and an Afghan coat, he just said, oh my God, I'm not going to be Billy here. I'm going to be Bill. And for the rest of my days, that's all I ever called Bill. Bill. Mm. Although it was obvious when I went back to his family, he was Billy. And to his fans, he was Billy. So it was either an address of Bill or it was an address of man. And the man thing was, well, all the um, all the uh, prog rockers and the hippies and the acid casualties all said, "Man." Yes, I do remember. Man. You punctuated the line. I know. Cool. Yeah. It was cool. It was. You uh, know, and we just 
constantly took the piss out of the thing by saying, what do you think, man? But we we didn't, it became part of the conversation. Yes, but you mentioned the Afghan coat, didn't you? You had an Afghan coat, long hair. Did you, was that, was that your kind of image during that sort of mid-70s period? Um, yes, because I had to survive. Um, uh, all these people around and uh, around me were just into ELP, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and yes, and Genesis, and blah blah. It makes me puke to even think of it. But that's all I had. Yes, I guess there was Jeff. I guess there was. Was there a bit of Jethro Tull, Bartley, James Alvis, and Wishbone Ash thrown in? Bartley James Harvest, no. Um, what was the long, there? Was, there was there was Jethro Tull, and then there was um, Wishbone Ash. Because normally they they sort of those bands that you mentioned, the prog bands of. If 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 people like one, they're going to like the whole collection, aren't they? Because that was all oh, a... right. Okay, Wishbone Ash, get this, man. I was in the third year. Um. Um. At. Eastwood High uh, in uh, Newton Marins in Glasgow. And up on the sixth floor were the music rooms. And um, you're only invited there if the students thought you were worthy. And one of the students was Brian Robertson. Do you know who I mean by did he, Brian Robertson? Did he go on the Thin Lizzy and Motorhead? Is that yes? Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> so Brian Robertson and I was, you know, I was playing Black Sabbath riffs, and he said, "You don't want to be doing that. You want to be doing this," and that was Wishbone Ash. And I said to him. Why? And he says, um, because you'll never learn about harmony with these guys. You will with these guys. So, in other words, not Black Sabbath, Wish Ash. Right. Okay, so I took from that and um, and he showed me how to play a couple of songs. Um, not note for note, because I picked her up so quickly. Um, and I've got to say, Brad Robertson was a fantastic piano player. That's interesting. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know he played piano. Oh, yes, he did. And he knew all his harmonies. He knew them. But then he fucked himself. You know, through drink and drugs and all the rest of it. But, um, I can remember, um, uh, so that that's when I was like, oh, God, 13, 14? And, uh, I took that and I went to Edinburgh and um, because all these people in this band were so up their own asses with um, musicality, shall we say, um, I went for one lesson with a guy called Neil Monroe. God bless him. I don't know whether he's still around. But I learned nothing. Um, And then I went to a guy called Steve Donnelly. And he was much more on the case. And after two lessons with him, um, he said to me, Alan, I can't teach you anymore. 
Right. Well, that's quite and a, a confidence no, booster. And then he said, I've got to go on the cruise liners to make some money. I've got 90 lessons a week. You can take them. God, that's a nice gig. And did you say yes? Yes. Ninety. You must have been. Ch- how long did that? Ma- how, how long did you manage to last teaching so many two people? Two weeks. Oh, two weeks. Yeah. Did you go a bit? Was it just too much? Of course, it was too much. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it might have just. But the fact that he said, "Alan, I can't teach you any more than you know." You know, that's, and to him, and to the other people in the horrendous band that I was in, um, that was it for me. Yes. So That was a a catapult. It's it's good to it's good to be it's good to be driven, isn't it? Sort of, I don't know. I I sort of remember seeing this documentary. I suppose over Christmas, it was about Scottish football managers, and one of them was Bill Shankly. And I can't remember where he came from, but he said you only had two choices: you either worked down the pit or you played football. And that was kind of your 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 sort of. I mean, that was probably a bit simplistic, and it sounds you know it's quite a nice soundbite. But I, I suppose when you have that desperation, it does make you sort of focused a lot more, doesn't it? To, to take the moment, you know. So I guess when you had your meeting Bill and getting the band together, did you have that feeling of like, God, this is our big chance? Um, uh, yes, I did with Bill. But uh, Bill came down to Edinburgh and I can remember him. And I knew that he was uh, in an attic bedroom with um, the drummer. And he was being asked to sing Bohemian Rhapsody or this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And then uh, I met Bill two days later and I could see the desperation on his face, and he was saying, man, get me the fuck out of here. So I did. Yes. I took him down to uh, 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 the flat that I shared with my girlfriend, and he was just like a demented Vic Reeves. You know, he was like, uh, you know, rubbing his thighs up and down. Yeah. Yes. But then I guess that's a kind of, was that kind of adrenaline or drinking? Was that what? I said, was that to do with adrenaline, him sort of, you know, being... Adrenaline. Or was he... Sheer adrenaline. Yes. So what was the what was the lineup of when you the first kind of the the first take of the band? What who was who had you managed to sort of get together for that? We didn't get anyone together. I was still in the band, and Bill had joined this band, and we did a few gigs. That's it. And Bill was making up. Um, uh, uh, lyrics from uh, prophecy um, uh, that were out of the Catholic Bible. Yes. It was just nonsense. Probably a bit sort of disturbing for the audience, I would imagine. Did, did, they, did they sort of take to this or did they find it a little bit like, wow, that's quite theatrical? Yes. So you recorded as quite a different, a lot of different kind of almost like a duo or like a cabaret duo for a few years. It wasn't a few years. It was a few months. Right. But Bill could just 
take it in stride. He said, okay, what are we doing? All right, that one. Okay, okay, done. Yes. So when did you decide to do the, the, the famous David Bowie, Boys Keep Swinging? Was this your kind of first kind of recording? Um, we knew that we had to get noticed. And the only way that we could think of was to do a Bowie song, which we hadn't um, uh, asked permission to do, and do that. Yes, but it got, it got quite a bit of attention, and um, it did, and it also charted, didn't it, in the the Record Mirror sort of Scottish charts, and got John. That that didn't really matter. No, but then you had the great John Peel sort of also pick you up, didn't he? Yeah. And that's always a blessing. It's almost like, yes, it's a kind of biblical moment, isn't it? Because one thing I've noticed during the show, you know, we during that period, especially the sort of 70s, 80s, well, possibly the 90s, but there were the kind of these gatekeepers, weren't there? So you had sort of only a few, you know, music papers, but they had big circulations. Then you had the John Peel show, Janice Long, Kid Jensen. So, so obviously, once you got that kind of, momentum it must have felt like things were starting to tick and when did you decide to st- stick with the name the the associates was that around just before doing oh, right okay um um that was done in almost all our um decisions we were having a pee in the, you know, in the lavatories. And um, at that point, our publishing company was meant to become Associates Patty Babson, I-A-P-B, which was, you know, the call out to, I don't know, I suppose, Bolo, be on the lookout for, but, um, um, America, and Bo just said, what about associates? And I said, yeah. There yeah. you go. There you go. That was that was it, actually. So when you came to do the first album, which was kind of like in the you know, very early, well, it was 1980, wasn't it, really? Had you sort of got all the songs, had you been kind of had written them and been rehearsing them for quite some time before going into the studio? No. No, um, we had um, a fairly good framework, but I would say there was, um, if there are 10 tracks on that album, um, if you take the 10th track, um, um, The Man from Peking, that was written in 1978 on piano right and we said to ourselves this doesn't fit so we made it on completely distorted guitar with no snare drum the snare drum was me kicking um uh the amplifier. Yes. Well, it's it certainly yes created quite the sound. And this was the track titled A, was it? Oh, A. Um, no, uh, A was Bill playing with lyrics. Now, Bill had played with lyrics from. 1976 onwards, and I said to Bill, look, Bill, you can play with this only so much, but after that, you're going to get found out, man. So you have to 
No. And uh, I think that was Bill's last hurrah of, I can play with uh, lyrics, I can play with letters. Right. Yes. Amazing. I mean, you did get a fantastic response. I mean, the great Paul Morley from the NME said it was a a kind of masterpiece, which must have... um, Were you surprised with the response and and the kind of... No. No, I wasn't. Because um, we were being told by record companies before we did the uh, affectionate punch... um, no one can make out what Bill is saying. And Bill would always uh, come back at them and say, well, talking heads, to me, he uh, he sounds like Yogi Bear. <laughs> yes. You know, that's what he sounds like. Yes. God, I never thought of that before. Poor David Byrne. Yogi Bear. Well, if you listen to more songs about buildings and foods, uh, and the one before that, and the one after that, he sounds like fucking Yogi Bear. Yeah. Well, yeah. well next time I have a listen to, to my um, greatest hits of Talking Heads, I'll, um, I'll have that in my mind. Yes, blimey. Did you, I mean, at the same time as, as, as doing this, were you starting to sort of, you know, what was it like trying to play live as we, as the band promoting the album? Did that sort of experience, was that good? Because obviously everyone's in their sort of the early honeymoon period of the band. Um, we weren't really trying to promote anything because we knew... Sorry, David, just lighting off again. Yes, I can. <laughs> um, uh, there was nothing on that album that we could really promote. Um, there was a matter of gender, um, because virtually anything that had keyboards in it, we couldn't do. So we just had a completely new set. And, of course, that upset the record company no end. But we just said, hey, this is what we're doing. Yes. Because on the first album you were with, was it Fiction Records, which was um, part of Universal? And then on the sort of follow-up album, which was the the fourth draw. This was on Situation 2. Did you... um, Why did you go for... That particular label? Because Warner Brothers were waiting in the wings. That's why. Right. We knew that in one evening, we demoed for them um, uh, Party Fears 2 and Club Country in one night secured a future. Wow, that is amazing. Yes, and then sort of, did that was that a good relationship you had with Situation 2? It was a situation by proxy. We really did have most of our uh, uh, situation with Warner Brothers because they knew... That's what was going to press the button, and it did. Yes. So you, I mean, it's kind of interesting, because having done this show for a long time, I mean, most bands have this great five-year narrative, you know, the 12-month honeymoon period, getting things together, you know, they get a single, John Peel plays it, they get the John Peel session, and then the sort of the first album, it's really exciting, the second album can be a bit more trying, and by the third, often things aren't going good, but... With you, it's obviously things are really developing incredibly well because you did, you know, three albums in three years and and, yeah. and came out with your 
kind of a masterpiece which has just been reissued by Cherry Red Records. So, yeah, so what was no, the... No, not by Cherry Red, no. Oh, I thought the reissue was that had come out. No, no. The reissue is on BMG. BMG. Oh, OK, sorry about that. Damn, I thought Cherry Red... I uh, said... Cherry Red have done satellite something... Right. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Sorry about that. Um, yes. So with with the band, I mean, had you be, by then, because it's obviously you and Bill, and, and but then you had Michael on bass and John on drums, did it become mm. a cohesive kind of four-piece band? Well, it had been. Look, um, David, if you look at the three months that we'd done in Scotland, which was very strategic, and it was our strategy, no one else's. We'd done June, July, and August in um, Scotland. Then we'd done September, October, November, and we'd done um, six gigs in 81, in Holland. That was it. And that was the end of that band. Yes. When you came to record the third album, did you what was the atmosphere like? Did you feel that it was it was in a precarious position? No. No, not not at all. Um we wanted Murphy on drums, and he's there for most of the time. And um, But by the time we'd got to... And Michael was there, but look, I played guitar, keyboards, bass, and Michael played bass on uh, Skipping and The Associate. All the rest of it was me. Yes. Had you... Okay. And, and by that, in that sort of period that, that you'd sort of been sort of so ensconced in the band, had your sort of playing and writing styles developed and changed, you know, that much? Um, no, I don't think so. It was just there. Um... Like with Party Fears 2, the main hook was written in 78. But we agreed between Bill and myself, this is too poppy. It will be ours later on. And it was. Yes. Can you remember the atmosphere? Because you recorded, was this in... The playground in um, Cam Camden Town, you recorded this particular album. Can you remember sort of what the session was like and what it was, you know, your... Well, for part of years too? Yes. It was, it was kind of like a... Oh, um... It was kind of like a... This is a, a done, given. This is a hit. We knew what we were doing. Because we'd lived, Bill and I had lived with that for three years until 1981 while we were recording it. I think we were doing it during fucking Lady fucking Dana's bloody wedding. Oh, yes. On the 29th of July or, or whenever it was. Um, yeah. But well, we knew, and we knew when we did Club Country, we knew that was our second single. And we knew that 18 Carat Love Affair was the third single. We just knew. Third, uh, 18 Carat Love Affair had been written in its entirety in 1978. God, it had been it had been there, sort of dormant. I mean, the the 
the reviews and and the response are quite a staggering, aren't they? I mean, when it came to sort of hearing the sort of the playback of the album, did it just make you feel like God, this we've created a masterpiece? I'd say a flawed masterpiece. We didn't really get bat to the bat, and we didn't get um, nude spoons. We didn't get them right. Oh, what was the first one you you said before nude spoons? Bat to the bat. Right. I think in bat to the bat, everything was so tight and constrained. We should have opened that out into a, you know, a, a, an oceanic and it just should have been wow. And with nude spoons, we did the same. We wrapped it up and we wrapped it up too tight. Hmm. Well, it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. It's an, it's a, but the album and also the cover. Who was the who was the whose idea was it to have this sort of um, amazing image of the two of you together? Well, I can remember Peter Ashworth was the photographer, but I knew we knew uh, we needed colours that were not red and were not blue. Um, they were... Um, they just had to be lux- luxuriant. Yes. Did you kind of relate to any of those kind of scenes that were happening? I mean, every generation has different scenes. I know there was kind of like a slightly new romantic scene. There was that kind of bit of a jazz scene with no, people... never. Did you, yeah, I just because it is absolutely kind of... never. If I ran into Gary Kemp, um, he'd say, "Oh, you're higher up the charts, or, or uh, than we are. Um, the drinks are on you," and I'd just say, "Fuck off." Yes, well. <laughs> That was that's a yeah. He was asking for that one. Well, if he did, but um, yes, God, no. I just, I mean, in a way, because because the band are so visual and there's sort of, I mean, you know, chiselled chiselled cheekbones really, and just like an amazing sound. And I just wondered if you if you'd sort of slightly found your audience as being, you know, quite a broad mix. Because obviously, did you play Top of the Pops as well? Didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. What was your what was that experience like? We made it fun for us. <laughs> yes. Yes. I guess there would have been a lot of balloons, weren't there? They had yeah. they had a lot of balloons in those days. And how were the band coping, you know, because let's face it, you know, being young, having such a lot of success, did was there sort of the the wonderful world of you know, consumption and, you know, drinking drugs and stuff. Was was that playing any part in, in sort of the creative process or the destructive process of the of the band? Uh, we would take coke, but only after the work was done. Yes. Well, that's that's kind of quite sensible. And what was and what was the what was it like? Because you did two, I think, was it two John Peel sessions, wasn't it? Kind of nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two. One of them with Dale Griffith. Did was that an enjoyable experience? Um, David, I can't remember because they all just blend into each other. Yes. Because I know you did a version of Nude Spoons on your first one. I just wondered when you play that, whether you think, yeah, that's better than the album, actually. No idea, man. No. It's a tricky one. So, look, it's kind of an interesting time because a lot of, um, during that period, because a lot of bands I've interviewed, the early 80s, you know, we had Thatcher got in, 79, then there was this kind of, 
the miners' strike. There has been the, the Falkland War, Greenham Common, you know, politically a huge amount of um, strife going on and unemployment. So a lot of bands that I, you know, have interviewed were often unemployed or on the job, job seekers' allowance or enterprise allowance schemes. I mean, was any of that kind of filtering through into your kind of creative? Uh, no, endeavor? not one bit of it. Not one. Look. When we were chopping lines, okay, I'll give you this, David. Yeah. When, if anyone else chopped a line, I didn't like it. I liked the, oh, what, uh, the ritual. I would do A for Alan, B for Billy. Do you get me? Yes, I can, I, I can get it. It's quite um, quite a nice kind of creative way of, of cutting lines, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And did it? And did that also play a, a kind of a destructive part of the band as well? You know, kind of communicating. Um. Yeah, quite possibly, but it's it's kind of like Bill wanted that, but he do, didn't want any part of it, i.e. where it came from, you know? Yes. What, just why, why about the where it came from? Are you talking about the political side of dr- the drugs? No, I'm talking about the dealer. Right. Yes. He didn't want anything to do with that. But Bill, at that time was also um, uh, taking, trying to take care of two of his friends. And that would be Christine and Stevie, who were hooked on heroin. Right. And he was going around to see them and I didn't like that. In the sense of his relationship? I let him know that I didn't like it. Yeah. What part, of, what part of that, was it to do with the, their kind of association with drugs or his relationship with them that made you feel not so... Con- I thought that they were dissipating his... Right. Because of their shit. Yes. Basically, they were sapping his. Yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's tricky, isn't it, really? It's like um, vampires. Vampires, aren't they? Energy. Energy vampires, I think we used to call them. Yes, it's not good. Blimey. Did he. Was he. Was he. Get, Effect, was, how was he coping, A, B, and... I mean, you were both the kind of front people of this band. I mean, how were you both dealing with that kind of sense of a certain fame, the fame game, and sort of becoming well-known as well as having this kind of creative uh, energy? Me? I was absolutely fine with it. Bill? No. No. He just hated it. Because he knew what it meant. Yes. And what's and what's your sort of ability to deal with it? Was that do you do you look at that as your sort of I don't know your childhood or your your sort of I don't know ability to see it's everything that I worked for since I was eleven years old, and this cunt who I thought was my friend, was throwing it back in my face. Yes. So it's kind of, it sounds a bit like you've got one of those kind of, kind of the classic kind of relationships of like the two both needing each other, but at the same time, the tension between you is quite horrendous. Um... It wasn't horrendous until it reared its ugly face. 
was it was it a volcanic moment? No. Fair enough. Yes. So what was the kind of the moment? Had you decided cuz cuz after the album you leave the band had you had you sort of when did the first kind of feeling of of sort of that option come into your mind uh, i can't go any further fair enough yeah but um yes how did you i mean are you able to sort of cuz cuz obviously you then sort of you know start a uh, a really prolific kind of solo career. I mean, did it take a while to recover from that that initial, you know, like coming away from the band? Yes. Man, I think we've done enough. I know. We leave it on a, um, a knife edge. Dramatic stuff. Anyway, look, that's part one of my interview with Alan Rankin from The Associates and also a prolific solo career, and also um, the record label as well, which we're going to find out more about later. But um, for now, that is part one. This has been The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, Yeah, and also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They might just change your life. Have a great week.